Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. I suspect that most of you listening to this think that the state of America is seldom and worse. Racial progress, America is a melting pot, the global alliance that has seen us through the past 75 years, character, civility, and liberal democracy itself all seem to be under siege. All true. But also true is that we've been here before. There are simply many dark moments in American history. Maybe there's something in our DNA that sets us up for it. But certainly from the Alien and Sedition Acts through the Civil War, the Industrial Revolution, America First, the Great Depression, Jim Crow, the Cold War, and the tyranny of Joe McCarthy, bad things happen to good countries. But each time we have emerged stronger, we have understood that the fault was not in our stars, but in ourselves. And we've reached deep into ourselves for our better angels. But as the pundits on Wall Street ask all the time, is this time different? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, John Meacham. John Meacham is a Pulitzer Prize winning historian, a contributing writer to the New York Times Book Review, and a contributing editor to Time Magazine. He's the author of numerous best-selling books, including American Gospel and Franklin and Winston, as well as biographies of George H.W. Bush, Thomas Jefferson, and Andrew Jackson. It is my pleasure to welcome John Meacham back to this program to talk about his newest work, The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a delight to have you here. Is there something unique in the character of this country that leads us to these dark times on some kind of a periodic basis that that really causes us to move from from guardrail to guardrail, as you say, and and really hit these bumps along the way? Well, one way of thinking about it is to the capacity for greatness, our capacity for goodness is so wonderfully infinite. Perhaps there is, as the Greeks would have it, uh, there's an, an essential nature of tragedy to that, that also our, our capacity for evil and for darkness uh, are commensurate. And we do um, manage to go from peak to valley uh, with, with remarkable regularity. I think partly it feels uh, as dramatic as it does from age to age because we are the world's longest, most successful, durable experiment in self-government at this scale and this complexity. And so it may just be that when we get it right, boy, do we get it right. But when we get it wrong, Lord help us. Well, there certainly are similarities in so many of these these problems, these periods that we've gotten into, not unlike our current period. Talk a little bit about the similarities or differences in terms of the way we've gotten ourselves out of them. There are a number of institutions in the life of the republic that in tandem, in some combination, have managed to be rowing in the right direction at a time when the others might be rowing in the wrong direction. That's the presidency, the Congress, the courts, the press, and the people themselves, all of us. And my sense of of every era is that as long as you have two or three of those institutions doing the right thing, they'll wear down the the bad actors. It, It may take longer than one would hope, But if you look at civil rights, for instance, you had the courts in many ways leading the way in the 1950s and slowly but surely because of the work of the press, 
the people began to change their minds. And then Lyndon Johnson and the Congress come in after 10 years from Brown and make that happen. That's the cleanest example of, of what I'm talking about. So you can have the possibility of progress, the great hope of reform, even if the president of the United States seems hopelessly out of sync with that conversation. Uh, Andrew Johnson, it happened during Reconstruction. Uh, it happened during the Red Scare under Woodrow Wilson. It happened under civil rights from president to president. And so it's not, I'm not saying we've been through it before, so let's calm down and not worry about it. What I'm saying is we've been through it before, so let's figure out what those lessons are, apply them, and get to work. Is there something about the distrust of institutions in this modern era that is somehow different? And the fact that, that all of the bad actors in all of the institutions seem to be rowing, as you say, in the same direction in this case? Well, yeah, but I mean, yes, but, uh, which is the great historical <laughs> phrase. You know, uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction, you, you had half the country didn't believe in the legitimacy of the government itself. Uh, Reconstruction was a terrible period where Southerners took up arms uh, again against federal authority. So if we've been having this conversation 50 years ago today, 46 Americans would have died in Vietnam. Uh, that was the daily uh, average casualty rate, not wounded, died. Uh, we would have just buried Senator Kennedy. We would have just buried Dr. King. Uh, we would have just been heading into the Chicago Convention uh, for the Democrats. An incredible amount of violence, an incredible amount of bloodshed that blessedly is simply not part of the social mix, the, the, the ambient reality of the moment. So, uh, again, I'm not saying... Just relax. But but I do think a sense of proportion helps us to say, all right, here we have a president who is, I guess, a populist. He's really just a, a reality show star more than anything else. Uh, he is not ideological, though he says ideological things. Uh, he's totally malleable. And one of the things that I think is important to, to remember is politicians are far more often mirrors of who we are than they are molders. And so the fact that Donald Trump is president says something fundamental about the disposition of the country right now. And what we have to figure out is what does that, what is that message? What does it say? And how do we change it? What role, what's different this time, do you think, in terms of the ability of people to get kind of instant confirmation bias, the fact that in this modern era of communications, we don't have to talk to anybody whose views are different than ours. We don't have to watch television and see people that are different than us, etc. I think that exacerbates it uh, unquestionably. I think there's a there's now an infrastructure for tribalism that uh, is far more convenient and pervasive than it has been in, in, in the past. Uh, in the old days, you know, sort of during the Cold War, you know, you'd sign up for direct mail lists or, you know, opinion journalism, the way we think of it, uh, had gone to magazines, right? So you'd at least had to wait a couple of weeks to get it. Uh, you couldn't have it every minute. And so I do think that uh, that the ubiquity of the media makes things feel 
gives things a heightened drama. But just because it feels as though it has a heightened drama doesn't mean it is. Um, you know, when you really, really sit down and look at how different the underlying policy of the, of the country is, uh, if I had told my Democratic friends at the beginning of the Trump administration that basically, except for, you know, he's tried to do lots of things, but the system has worked, right? The courts have stopped immigration orders. Uh, he's changed his mind on some things. Any Republican president would have given you that tax bill. Any Republican president would have appointed someone like uh, Justice Gorsuch. Uh, so one of the things we have to figure out, one of the things that falls to us in this climate is to separate the noise from the signal, as the cliche has it, and to be forever vigilant. And it's a stress test for citizenship. It's going to be difficult. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But I just decline to accept that Donald Trump can undo 240 years of a constitutional order. I really do. I want to stay on this get worse before it gets better, because one of the things that, that certainly is, I guess, fundamentally different this time is that the change itself that is producing the, the kind of anxiety that people have, that is, that is hollowing out the middle class, that is creating many of, of the problems yeah. and, and engendering this populist reaction— that that change is continuing to come at us, and it is coming at a faster and faster clip. We haven't even gotten to the height of, of AI and robotics and job loss. And, I mean, all these things that we yeah. hear about and talk about, arguably it's that could get worse before it gets better. It could. And one of the fascinating – and the question is exactly right. And, and one a, a further complicating issue in that is – the fact that if you're doing fairly well, and that is if you've won the economic equation, if you've gotten over the, the, the canyon uh, into the middle, upper middle class, you're looking at your 401k, you're looking at your assets, you're looking at the value of your house, and you're thinking, man, Donald Trump isn't so bad after all, is he? Uh, if you're on the other side of that canyon, it's getting ever wider, as you, as you suggest. So it, it's a, to me, it's a fascinating bit of cognitive dissonance. Uh, when I have pro-Trump people ask me questions, they'll say, well, isn't it true that unemployment's never been lower? Yeah, it's true. Uh, as you say, that's about to change in a significant way because of different structural and technological reasons. But if you're involved in the political conversation at the level that we're assuming people are, uh, many people are, if you're, uh, accepting that tribal confirmation bias, you know, if, if you're, uh, in totally engaged in, in, in what's unfolding, you're probably doing better than the people whose vote made Trump possible, if that makes sense. So there's, I think it's possible that there's yet another uh, fracturing, yet another splintering of the populist uh, cohort that sent Trump to the White House. We're living right now, I think, in kind of the political equivalent of climate change. It's 100 degrees one day, it's 30 degrees the next day. So the people who have not yet made the leap across the canyon into the middle class are going to be, I think, I don't have any real data to support this, but my, my historical sense tells me they're up for grabs. And it's not crazy to think of them of moving to a more of a left-wing populist 
in re- relatively soon in the way that they tried the right-wing populist. If the right-wing populist doesn't deliver, maybe they'll try a left-wing one. And so I think we're in for a fairly sustained period of, of political chaos. What role, in your view, and, and from a historical perspective, does globalism, globalization play in this? The fact that the world is so much more interconnected now, and certainly we've been seeing bits and pieces of this over the past week or two, but just the very nature of the way the world and economies are so interconnected. It's a huge, I, I think it's the defining issue of the era in the way slavery was in the middle of the 19th century, industrialization, uh, agrarianism to industrialization in the uh, 19th to 20th into the 1920s, the way the survival of capitalism was in the 1930s globalization, the rapid spread of technology, and its implications are the defining issue of of the day. And as you suggested a second ago, we haven't even really begun to wrestle with what it's going to look like in 30 years. Um, We probably know what it's going to look like in 10, I would say. But beyond that, I don't think we do. And that creates, historically, that kind of tectonic change creates the conditions for wild political swings. And it's why that we've been lucky in the United States uh, heretofore to have people at the top of the system who were about managing that change as opposed to exploiting it. And the question going forward is, can we get back to having a president, a congressional leadership that is more about managing the, the chaos uh, instead of just uh, uh, trying to blow uh, oxygen to make the flames burn brighter. When you talk about exploiting that change, the, the era that comes most immediately to mind is the era of McCarthyism, where, where certainly McCarthy didn't mm-hmm. create those problems, but was so good at exploiting them. You know, there were communists in the government. There were there was a problem. The thing is that Harry Truman got most of them uh, in the 1940s with a program that was not particularly civil liberty friendly. Uh, let let the record show. Uh, McCarthy came along, and as Roy Cohn, his lawyer and later Donald Trump's lawyer, uh, said, uh, he bought anti-communism the way other people might buy a car. Uh, he wrote it for four years. I think that's an interesting number uh, for all the obvious reasons. Uh, he, the only person, not the only person, but the main person who stood up against him early was a Republican senator from Maine, Margaret Chase Smith, who gave a speech early on uh, laying out the entire case against McCarthy. She only got six co-signers. Uh, McCarthy dismissed them as uh, Snow White and the Six Dwarves. But by the end, the Senate was with her, not with him. And one of the things that I gives me some hope here, and again, I'm following Roy Cohn's line of, of analysis on this, uh, which I never thought I would say that sentence, <laughs> but his view was that uh, McCarthy simply overplayed his hand and overstayed his welcome, that the country enjoyed the fervor for a while, but in the end exhausted itself. And McCarthy rode television up. And I think ultimately it it helped bring him down because when they started to see him really up close, they realized this guy that they've been reading about in the in the newspapers was not an attractive figure. And I I don't think it's impossible that that the Trump show 
gets canceled in the same way. No show lasts forever. It's interesting, though, because it's in that context that somebody made the comment recently that if Richard Nixon had Fox News, he might not have had to resign. Yeah, I don't... I need to write a book about this, I guess, or something. (laughs) I'm I'm puzzled by this, because Nixon... um, Well... Here's here's what I'm going to write. So, so in our movie tone version of, of of history, which our our minds naturally do. I mean, we we, we condense things because that's what we do. You know, there's the break in, then you know Robert Redford does some investigation, and then Nixon gets on the helicopter. Well, you know, there was 26 months of this uh, of, of of the process. Uh, the hearings only began in uh, 11 months after the break in. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that Nixon had to give over the tapes. The thing that would if Nixon would have unquestionably survived if he had simply taken Pat Buchanan's advice and destroyed the tapes. Uh, that's one of the odd, the, the great uh, odd historical questions forever will be why did Nixon think the tapes that he should not destroy the tapes? I am sure Donald Trump would destroy the tapes. Uh, so maybe there's there's something in this. But, you know, I, I, I just think that what we had in Watergate was the same kind of stress test. Uh, in many ways, we had the most severe kinds of constitutional questions because they were abuse of power questions. Nixon was using the IRS. He was using the CIA. He was using the FBI for political purposes. And what we'll find out eventually, presumably from Director Mueller, is whether or not uh, we have a similarly severe set of circumstances. You know, did a presidential campaign uh, knowingly uh, cooperate or accept the help of a foreign power to influence a, an American election? And right now, that, as Secretary Rumsfeld might say, is a known unknown. You talk about electeds as mirrors or molders, as we look at the current crisis and we look at similar crises historically, is the solution or traditionally do the solutions come from the top down? How critical is charismatic leadership even to working our way out of these problems as opposed to grassroots effectiveness? Oh, I think it's, it's a mysterious and, and wonderful interplay, uh, and it's almost impossible to to figure out exactly how that works. That's the mystery of Democratic lowercase d leadership. Uh, without Rosa Parks, Lyndon Johnson can't sign the Civil Rights Bill. Without John Lewis, Lyndon Johnson can't write, uh, sign the Voting Rights Act. Uh, without uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and without uh, William Monroe Trotter and uh, you know, people who's Frederick Douglass, people whose names that we should remember but, but, but largely don't, without that legacy of uh, agitating for emancipation, of agitating for uh, suffrage, uh, you don't get to the, the middle of the century and, and, and that action. Uh, presidents uh, are essential, but they often come at the end of a process, not at the beginning. And I think that that to me is one of the things that should give us the most hope is, you know, president Johnson was the, was the conductor, I guess, uh, pick your metaphor of a symphony that had been gathering strength 
since Appomattox. And it took 100 years. And he rightly deserves immense political credit for, for what he did. But he did it uh, because other people had been willing to, to give their lives on the streets of Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and uh, places throughout the South in order to underscore the yawning and tragic gap between what Americans say we believe and what we actually put into action. And every era in American life that has become one that we want to emulate or commemorate is one in which we have more generously interpreted the Jeffersonian assertion of equality. And that has begun at the grassroots, as you say, it's begun in the streets, it's begun in the living rooms and the classrooms and the kitchen tables and the factory floors. It hasn't necessarily begun in the White House. And I think that in many ways is, is what reassures me the most about getting through this particular hour. Has it mattered whether these debates historically, and it's a very fine line, agreed, have been about policy or about culture? Because so much of what, what is at the core of, of, of the debate today are what you know conveniently gets called the culture wars. And, and it strays from the politics and the policy sometimes. Well, that's the nature of life in a republic. These things are almost inextricably intertwined. Uh, we tend to, I don't know, we either politicize the culture or acculturate the politics. <laughs> I don't know which, which it would be, or perhaps both. Um, it has to do with... Uh, and the framers understood this, it has to do with the collection of manners and morals. Uh, it's not just about Medicare Part B. Uh, it's not just about uh, a particular kind of visa system. Uh, there are values uh, and worldviews that find manifestation, specific manifestation in certain policy questions. And the presidency in particular is is especially important in that because the disposition of heart and mind and tone that the president sets uh, has an outsized effect on on those values in that culture. And I think that's why, from the very beginning, John Adams understood this. He wrote before, uh, uh, I think even before the Constitutional Convention, but, but certainly in that period, he wrote that the first character, meaning the president, would be the object of all eyes and all consideration. Uh, there's this myth that the founders would never have understood how powerful the president was. I don't really think that's true. I think they, they did understand it, um, at least in the sense we're talking about it. They understood that, that having a single chief, because they understood monarchy, would have a, a discernible effect on, on hearts and minds. And that's why uh, it matters so much who we send there, because I think the Greeks were right. I think character is destiny. Character is fate. Uh in our most uh, contentious moments, oftentimes the character and, and um, again, disposition of the president has, has mattered enormously. Having Franklin Roosevelt, who was very skilled at having an ambivalent relationship with the truth, was actually enormously helpful to us as we prepared for World War II. Uh, having Dwight Eisenhower, who had you know, understood what the costs of combat were, understood war, gave us a president in the 1950s who we didn't lose a single soldier in combat 
when Dwight Eisenhower was president of the United States. It's almost impossible to think about that in the 1950s. Uh, Jack Kennedy was able to learn from his mistakes between the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. It helped us get through the, the great showdown in October 1962. Character matters, and that's why presidential elections matter. They're not dispositive. I mean, it's not, that's not the only thing that matters. But in the life of the republic, our conduct, yours and mine, plus whom we decide to give ultimate power to, the interplay between those two forces is what shapes who we are. It is the interplay, it seems, between the character of the country at a given time and the character of its leaders and the way that they are or are not in sync at any given time. Yes, uh, and that's the question of leadership, right? Um, it's the question of, because they have to be somewhat in sync for them to get to power. Uh, that, that's the baseline, right? So they win an election, and then the presidents who are able to reach beyond their base are the ones we remember. They're the ones we honor. They're the ones we, uh, we want to emulate. And uh, if you're a president, who wins with 46, 47, 48% of the vote, and you only govern for that 46, 47, 48%, you're not going to rise to that level of, of the historical ranks of, of people that we want to, to be like and to have more of. And I think that's one of the challenges that faces President Trump. And finally, John, what is it that could happen within the current framework, the current context, that would make you more concerned rather than less about coming out of this, about the fate of the republic? Great question. Um, I think if the president attempted to remove a judge, uh, postpone an election of some kind, um, clearly uh, an unmistakably... Uh, undue part of the constitutional order, uh, then, then my optimism would begin to, it would become far, far more tempered. Um, and we've run it close already. I mean, sacking Comey and the justice department, you know, fortunately, I mean, fortunately, unfortunately, I mean, we've seen a good bit of that before Nixon did a lot of that. So, so fooling around with the justice department is, is not unprecedented, but I think if he decided if a judge somewhere, throws out something and he launches an impeachment proceeding against that judge, then I think we're, we're in territory. We need to uh, be even more concerned. John Meacham, the book is The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels. John, always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Great fun. Talk to you again. Thank you.